This is the Green Street News. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on things that are happening in the world and how they can impact your health and the health of your family. Welcome back. Today's show may stink a little bit, but that's only because we'll be talking about turning sewage sludge into fertilizer to grow our food. This kind of recycling may be a great way for municipalities to deal with their waste problem, but now we're discovering that the sludge itself contains toxic chemicals which then make their way into our food system and from there into our bodies in a kind of vicious cycle of toxic contamination. That stinky story and Patty with the week's headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Sometimes it feels like our Green Street News show is becoming the PFAS show. Every week, it seems, there's another article about how these ubiquitous chemicals are impacting our world and our health. Part of the reason for this is the scale of pollution that's being caused by this family of forever chemicals. Part of it is the fact they're so persistent in the world, and we may never be able to get rid of them. And part of it is the serious and devastating impact they are having on our health. Underlying all of these factors, of course, is the sneaky way these chemicals are making their way into our world. No matter how careful you are about what you eat and how you choose to live your life, chances are good you already have PFAS chemicals in your body. PFAS chemicals are in our food, in the water we drink, in the air we breathe, even in the rain, everywhere in the world. And yet, the pursuit of money and corporate greed being what they are, there are about a dozen companies that continue to make these chemicals despite their unparalleled and escalating environmental cost. According to the Swedish nonprofit organization Chemsec, the world's top PFAS producers include Chemours, Dakin, 3M, Merck, Bayer, BASF, and Honeywell. Our show today is about how a lot of the PFAS in the world ends up in our sewers and what happens after that. It's a story about sewage sludge and the rather pathetic efforts of government officials to do something about an environmental problem which is clearly beyond their capacity to deal with it. Our guest today is Tracy Frisch, a freelance journalist from upstate New York who earned her master's at Cornell and was formerly the founding executive director of the New York Coalition for Alternatives to Pesticides and the Regional Farm and Food Project. We started our conversation talking about the use of sewage sludge as fertilizer. A few years ago, the state of Maine banned the use of fertilizer made from sewage sludge or biosolids, as they call this stuff. So, it was startling to hear New York Governor Kathy Hochul propose to drastically increase the amount of sewage sludge fertilizer she wants used on the beautiful agricultural fields across this largely agricultural state. The Hochul administration's new plan to recycle 85% of the state's entire solid waste stream by 2050 relies on spreading a lot more municipal sewage sludge on fields as fertilizer. Here's Tracy Frisch. It's costly for wastewater treatment plants to dispose of sewage sludge. There are several disposal methods that are in common use. Many cities, uh, including some of the smaller ones, used to have or still have sewage sludge incinerators where they burn the stuff, usually at the wastewater treatment plant. And these are totally unknown to the public. And so PFAS does, isn't destroyed at incineration temperature, so it's going up in, in the air and coming down on the ground. 
the other disposal method is uh, landfills and sewage sludge because it's organic like food waste or yard waste releases methane but it also costs a lot you know landfill tipping fees can be high and there's trucking involved and this stuff is often not dewatered fully so it's wet heavy but the cheap way is to compost it or otherwise process it in a way that doesn't remove toxics but it's um, promoted as a nutrient-rich fertilizer. And sometimes communities give it away. Sometimes they sell it. So how is PFAS getting into the sewage sludge in the first place and at levels that are quite high? We know the water itself may have PFAS, but the kind of PFAS they're finding in sewage sludge is different. I set out to find this out several years ago, and... You know, it took a little while, but I like to share what I found out. So first, there's thousands of consumer and commercial products that contain PFAS. And sometimes the PFAS is in these products, and this includes cosmetics. It, mascara and lipstick often have PFAS, so they resist wetness and they stay longer on your face. Um, PFAS is in some floor wax, ski wax, car wax, it is in some cleaning materials, it's in some apparel and some footwear, and if it's called stain resistant, uh, it's probably in it. So when you wash those things, whether you scrub them or you, you're able to put them in a washing machine, that will get, you know, you dump your water down the drain, and that's another way to get PFAS. There's recently been a study actually published in March by University of Florida scientists, they determined that the most prevalent PFAS, actually it's a precursor of PFAS, in, in sewage sludge is from toilet paper. And a previous study had determined, it was just several years ago, I believe, that toilet paper contributes the greatest amount of solid material in sewage sludge. And so they got toilet paper from four continents and they did really extensive, comprehensive testing of those. And then they tested sewage sludge at eight wastewater treatment plants in Florida. And the prevalent PFAS was not PFOA or PFOS, the ones that everyone talks about. It was another, another one that's less well-known, but is persistent and, and associated with human health problems. And, and where does, why is there PFAS in toilet paper? Well, no one is putting PFAS in toilet paper to make it water repellent or stain resistant. Okay, Tracy Frisch is probably right about that. Toilet paper that is stain and water resistant would probably not be a big seller. So what is it then? What possible reason could account for all that PFAS in toilet paper? Tracy consulted with one of her friends, an expert in the field. He said that he was called to consult with a Scandinavian paper mill because they didn't know where the PFAS was coming from. It was in the lubricant that was used in the pulping machinery. And that lubricant, they were putting like a couple of pounds in every two or three days. 
we're talking about parts per trillion it being the drinking water standard one part per trillion is something like one drop in several olympic sized swimming pools so you put several pounds you're going to have pfas in the effluent you're going to have pfas in the paper and you're going to have pfas in the paper sludge okay so that's one mystery solved Toilet paper manufacturers are using the PFAS to lubricate the equipment so it runs smoother and doesn't get gummed up. PFAS is like magic for manufacturers, especially anyone that's making stuff that has to go through some kind of extruder process. Even if it's not actually being added to the product being made, it can still end up there as part of the manufacturing process. There's two reasons that PFAS is in our consumer products. It's used as a manufacturing aid and that's why it's in paper products. And it's also intentionally added for stain resistance or water repellency or other things like that. And all the legislation that I'm aware of has called for bans or phase outs for intentionally added PFAS. Until we look at manufacturing aids, we are not gonna get rid of PFAS. It has all these properties that manufacturers like, and they don't necessarily even know that they're using it. So Tracy has talked about two ways the PFAS can end up in our world. The first is when PFAS are added directly to products to make them work better, like waterproof mascara or car wax. The second is when PFAS is in the manufacturing process, not intentionally in the product itself. But there are two more sources of PFAS in sewage sludge. Number three is coming from industry. Some industry has wastewater discharge permits and doesn't go through a wastewater treatment plant, a sewer plant, but some, you know, we don't have that much and they're able to pass pass it on to through the sewer pipes. And four is really the very egregious thing. Landfills are required to collect their leachate so that it doesn't get in. Presumably it will keep it out of groundwater and rivers. So they collect the leachate and there are tens of thousands of gallons a day. And this goes for for closed landfills too. The leachate is typically collected. And where does it go? Without pretreatment in most cases, to a sewer treatment plant, a wastewater treatment plant. And do they have the equipment or the methods to detoxify this landfill leachate, which has every chemical that would leach out of consumer products and household hazardous waste and all kinds of things? No. Some of it goes in the sewage sludge and some of it goes into our rivers, bays, and lakes. It's becoming clear that recycling is not always a good idea, especially when the item being recycled has toxic chemicals in it. We're finding this out with plastic recycling, where the chemicals used to make plastic can't be separated out once the plastic is made. So the idea of recycling plastic is turning out to be a giant myth. And the same is true of sewage sludge. There's a misunderstanding, and that's that recycling is always the way to go. Recycling toxics will just spread toxics throughout our environment. It causes a vicious cycle. And This is one of the most egregious ideas because PFAS is so persistent. And since all sewage sludge that has been tested, people have have challenged me on this, but no one has been able to disprove this. All sewage sludge that has been tested has been found to be contaminated with PFAS, usually in the parts per billion, which is a thousand times higher than the drinking water standard and PFAS mobile and get into our drinking water. So brilliant idea. There's extensive data from Maine 
because this practice was endorsed by the state and and farmers as a civic duty spread sewage sludge fertilizer in the 80s and probably beyond and the state banned the practice last year uh, in both chambers and was signed by the governor and the state had committed to test a thousand sites and now that's up to i think 1500 they're testing soil they're testing groundwater And they're finding, in some cases, extremely high levels, and they're finding that there were farmers testifying. It was never spread on their land, but their neighbor had spread it, and it was in their irrigation well. Or they bought feed from a farm that was contaminated unknowingly, and they contaminated their their land. So what can be done about the PFAS in sewage sludge problem? Well, it seems that step one would be to stop turning it into fertilizer and spreading it on our farmland where it will keep polluting our food forever. If you live in New York, a quick call to the governor's office would help. Just say, please don't contaminate our farmland forever. The other would be to stop producing these chemicals in the first place and use our amazing problem-solving skills and entrepreneurial acumen to develop better ways to manufacture things that don't require these toxic chemicals. I mean, if you don't look, you don't find, and you can just pretend there's no problem. And since we're not tasting, you know, parts per billion in our food, I don't know what PFAS tastes like or tastes like anything. We just are accumulating it in our bodies. So I think it is an incredibly stupid idea. And um, it it can be done kind of under the radar at times. Although sometimes people find out because some of the sewage sludge fertilizer stinks and sometimes farmers let it sit for a while before they spread it and people have a fit. So we are we are destroying ourselves and we congratulate ourselves that we passed a law in New York that PFAS is not allowed in food packaging, but that law is not being enforced in any kind of meaningful way and it doesn't address the lower levels that are still harmful. We cannot detoxify PFAS and we cannot, we excrete it extremely slowly. So the half-life of different PFAS chemicals in humans is in years. But uh, women, when they are pregnant, the PFAS goes from placenta to fetus and nursing mothers transfer PFAS. So the body burden in in an infant can be quite high if the mother has high PFAS. And it is, it's tragic and it's, it's a crime against humanity. Tracy Frisch, freelance journalist and former founding director of the New York Coalition for Alternatives to Pesticides and the Regional Farm and Food Project. We'll be right back. All right, Patty, time for the news. What do you got this week? 
The average liter of bottled water has nearly a quarter million invisible pieces of nanoplastics. These were detected and categorized for the first time by a microscope using dual lasers. Holy Christmas. Yeah. Scientists long figured that there were lots of these microscopic plastic pieces, but until researchers at Columbia and Rutgers universities did their calculations, they never knew how many or what kind. Researchers found particle levels ranged from 110,000 to 400,000 per liter, averaging at around 240,000, according to a study that was printed in Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences. Okay, so wait a minute. 250,000 nanoparticles of plastic in a single bottle. Correct. These are particles that are less than a micron in size. And just to give you an idea, a human hair is about 83 microns wide. These particles are less than a micron. So this is every brand of bottled water they tested? Well, you know, they tested three different bottled brands, know, but they're all going to be the same. We don't know exactly which ones. They bought them at Walmart. But much of the plastic seemed to be coming from the bottle itself and this is going to get everybody really upset from the reverse osmosis membrane filters used to keep out other contaminants. That's a problem. So you have a filter to take out most of the contaminants and it's adding plastic nanoparticles. It's adding nanoplastic particles to your water. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. But researchers still cannot answer the big question, which is, are these nanoplastic pieces harmful to our health? I was just going to ask you that. Yeah, well... Study co-author Phoebe Stapleton, a toxicologist at Rutgers, said, quote, that's currently under review. We don't know if it's dangerous or how dangerous. We do know that they are getting into the tissues of mammals, including people. And of course, this is the response. The International Bottled Water Association said in a statement, quote, there currently is both a lack of standardized methods and no scientific consensus on the potential health impacts of nano and microplastic particles. Therefore, media reports about these particles in drinking water do nothing more than unnecessarily scare consumers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that's what they said, but isn't the point people may not want to be drinking bottled water because of the amount of plastic in it? A hundred percent. But we're not going to stop selling bottled right. water because we're making money. Right? Of course. Okay. And the American Chemistry Council, which represents these plastic manufacturers, declined to immediately comment. All right. So what are these people who did the study? What are they going to do about, about bottled water? Are they going to give up bottled water? The people who did the study? Well, the authors interviewed, okay, said that they were cutting back on their own bottled water use after they conducted the study. One of them actually said that he was increasing his tap water usage, and he pointed out that the filters themselves, and we're talking now about the RO filters, can be a problem by introducing plastics into the water after it has taken out the chemicals and the chlorine that you're trying to remove. So it's just, there's no winning. So, Patty, what are we going to do? We have a RO filter under our sink I've for our drinking water. I've never liked the plastic components of it. So, Always worried about the plastic bladder and the actual filters, too. I mean, it is removing PFAS. It is removing, you know, chlorine and other contaminants, lead and, you know, heavy metals and so on and so on. But it's adding plasticizing chemicals, perhaps, and for sure... Now that we have this study, it's adding plastic particles. What about spring water in glass bottles? As long as it hasn't been filtered through those mm -hmm. plastic filters, it's probably fine. I, at this point, I'm really trying to get some answers. I'm yeah. trying to get answers from some water experts and from the medical community. 
and the water experts, the question that I have for them is how do we get rid of those chemicals that we're trying to get rid of and not add the nanoplastics? And so is that going to be whole house filters that just contain carbon? And then you go to a distillation system that doesn't have any plastic filters on it, just goes into a stainless steel tank where it is going through the distillation process. I don't know. Crazy. I don't know. It, it may turn out that, that drinking the small amounts of contaminants in your water, unless you're living in an area where there's huge contamination, right? Yeah. It might be better to drink tap water, but we'll see. What do you have? I have uh, Environmental Health News is reporting that the EPA is going to finally review vinyl chloride. That's the chemical that contaminated East Palestine in that train derailment. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency announced it's reviewing vinyl chloride under the Toxic Control Substance Act, or TSCA, which could lead to restrictions or even a ban on vinyl chloride. Vinyl chloride is used primarily to make polyvinyl chloride plastics. That chemical is already classified by the U.S. EPA as a carcinogen and linked to higher rates of lung and liver cancer, as well as liver disease, neurological problems, and miscarriage. But billions of pounds are still being produced annually in the United States. According to the story, the EPA will examine all exposure routes, including air emissions, drinking water, and soil contamination, as well as workplace and accident exposure. The latter is especially significant as back on February 3rd, a Norfolk Southern train carrying a long list of toxic chemicals, including vinyl chloride, caught fire as it approached East Palestine, Ohio. The train derailed and the cars burned for three days. Months after the incident, residents, despite reassurances from the EPA and other agencies, were experiencing myriad health problems. Many residents left and never returned. Remember, this was the same thing that happened at the World Trade Center. Oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Not a problem. Yep. You can breathe the air. You can hey, eat the, the head of the EPA came down and went to ground zero and just said, the air is perfectly fine to breathe. Yeah. All these particles and everything in the air is perfectly fine. Don't worry about it. And of course, now we have this huge amount of funding that is that is paying for medical expenses for all these people who have cancers and giving you know money to families whose loved ones have died from cancers. It it's crazy. Hillary Flint, vice president of the Unity Council for East Palestine train derailment, said, we have seen firsthand what vinyl chloride can do to a community. This is a step in the right direction. She's referring to the EPA review. And we will continue to fight for a total vinyl chloride ban. The American Chemistry Council, which you mentioned before, which represents chemical manufacturers, said it appreciates the agency working to engage the public early in the process and encourage the EPA to put, quote, science first, unquote, in its review. Gathering the, this is a quote from the American Chemistry Council, gathering the most relevant data to inform future decision making will be critical. Anything less will add regulatory burden, cost, delays, and impede progress to a sustainable and circular economy, unquote. Right. Well, the, the, use, of PV, <laughs> the use of PVC, polyvinyl chloride, oh, in myriad products including the sneakers that you probably have on your feet, yeah. is going to be a, a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so that's my report on vinyl chloride. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll see the end of vinyl chloride eventually. What do you got? Wouldn't that be great? You got something else? We have to keep talking about plastic. I guess we do. We don't. Well, we could stop right here. Well, you know what? Consumer Reports is reporting that BPA and phthalates are widespread in supermarket foods regardless of their packaging. Okay, this is about plastic packaging. It's about these two particular 
chemicals or classes of chemicals, phthalates and the bisphenols, okay, which are major endocrine disrupting chemicals and they're found in plastics. Looking to reduce your exposure to plasticizers in this new year? Contrary to what you might think, shopping organic and avoiding plastic food packaging isn't the surefire way to avoid harmful chemicals such as BPA and phthalates. According to new research from Consumer Reports, phthalates and bisphenols, two chemicals linked to various health risks such as diabetes and hormone disruption, are widespread among supermarket staples and fast foods regardless of their packaging and ingredients and whether or not they are certified organic. Researchers have found that 99% of the supermarket and fast foods they tested contained phthalates, which are chemicals that are added to plastic to make them more flexible. 99%? That's everything. That's Basically, every, that's, that's everything. Everything just think, they tested. That's exactly right. So you th- you look at a box cereal and you think, okay, I'm going to buy this box of cereal. No plastic, right? But inside the paper box is a plastic bag. And those plastic bags leach in to the cereal. I mean, we've had this discussion before about how Cheerios are contaminated with, with endocrine-disrupting yeah. chemicals. So anyway, among the supermarket foods tested, Annie's organic cheesy ravioli proved to have the most phthalates at 53,579 per nanogram, followed by Del Monte sliced peaches and chicken of the sea pink salmon. The chemical levels found in those prepackaged foods proved much higher than even those of several fast food items, including McDonald's quarter pounder with cheese and Little Caesars classic cheese pizza. However, researchers found one fast food favorite, Wendy's Crispy Chicken Nuggets had a whopping 33,980 phthalates per nanogram. Mm -hmm. Phthalates have been linked to reproductive disorders and genital abnormalities, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, and cardiovascular disease, according to the Mayo Clinic. Okay, so the solution has got to be buy your food at a farmer's market, right? Buy Buy food without packaging. Join a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture Program. Mm -hmm. Get a box of freshly harvested organic produce delivered or pick it up wherever you pick up your CSA and do that every single week. At least you'll have a base of healthy food uncontaminated to work with every week. Or, or, or shop at a co-op where, or shop you know, at a co-op where, where everything is not wrapped in plastic. Right, and, you can buy and buy bulk, bulk foods, put yeah. them into a paper bag, and then put them into a glass jar when you get home. And also co-ops do buy from local farmers. So they're not just buying stuff yeah. that's, you know, that's right. found in Stop and Shop and, and, you know, the other big grocery stores, but yeah. they are actually buying, including Whole Foods. Yeah. I mean, co-ops even does a better job than Whole Foods in that, in that they're buying local produce. Yeah. It doesn't come wrapped in plastic. I have one piece of good news, and that is that the U.S. EPA has launched an environmental justice office. About time. Hello. Right. Yeah. This happened just last year. The U.S. EPA launched a new office that will be laser-focused on the needs of minority communities that have historically been overburdened by pollution. The office will oversee the $3 billion in environmental justice grants that were created by the recent passage of the new climate legislation. EPA Minister Michael Reagan said, quote, with the launch of a new national program office, we are embedding environmental justice and civil rights into the DNA of EPA and ensuring that people who have struggled to have their concerns addressed see action to solve the problems they've been facing for generations. Right. And these communities are known as fence line communities and they are known as sacrifice communities. A bit of good news. That's a bit of good news. I had to close with a little bit of good news. And I like it. All right. Thanks, Patty. Mm Mm-hmm.
That's going to do it for our show today. Special thanks to our friend and colleague, Tracy Frisch, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our engineer, Josh Wyman, associate producer, Toby Ziegler, social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening. <laughs>